Welcome to this episode of Print Run. My name is Eric Kane, and with me as always is Laura Zatz. Say hello, Laura. Hello, everyone. This, Laura, well, okay, so today is August 28th. It is. That's good. But what's even better is that I'm really, really excited about all the things we're talking about this week. I've never seen you this excited, (laughs) and I introduced you to the Minnesota State Fair and the cheese curds therein. Yeah, that's true. Um, So, but I'm excited, Laura, because usually book news frankly, and this may come as a shock coming from us, book news isn't that exciting usually. Yeah. I mean, usually it's, you know, some little trend here and there or like maybe some new book hits the best bestseller list and that's all like fun and good. Or like, you know, Amazon has like consumed some new giant portion of the American economy that I now have to have like a prime membership to access. Or like maybe like a Nazi periscoper has a new book out with Simon and Schuster or something. You know, that's all like fun and good, but <laughs> fun- <laughs> Finally, finally, we have we have something real um, because shit hit the fan this oh, week. So much shit hit the <laughs> fan, you guys. And I cannot wait to dig into it because I feel like when we made this show and we were kind of referenced this online the other day, like we wanted to do a show that was, you know, that talked about the industry and like talked about being agents and like kind of tried to give an insight into what it was like to work in publishing, and kind of discuss some of the issues of the day. But like mostly, I just wanted to like get jokes off about dumb shit that happened. And that's <laughs> because there's always dumb shit happening, but it's right. never quite exciting no. enough. And there's always like a like a an educational angle to it. Like yeah. we always end up having to be like informative, you know. But today, and we may be informative today too. We'll see. But um, mostly, I'm just here for the jokes today, which is great. Um, but before we before we do any of that, how about the basic rundown, huh? Oh, boy. You just led with jokes, and I'm going into a segment with absolutely (laughs) no jokes. You can be the boring one today. How's that? Hooray. Um, So it's almost the end of August. Holy cow. Which means two things. One, I'm taking Eric to the State Fair tomorrow. And Mm. two, the First Pages episode is going to be out this Thursday, August 31st. Um, So watch out for First Pages. You have to be a Patreon subscriber to get at that. But trust me, it's going to be worth your while. Um, Our September dates are for a query show. It's September 14th. For writing by reading, it's September 21st. And for First Pages, again, it's September 28th. So... Those are our September dates. They're all Thursdays. Write them down mm-hmm. and send us your queries and first pages at printrunpodcast at gmail.com. Hey, and we also, just to re-up the writing by reading we did last week, um, I thought it turned out pretty well. We took a look at The Hate You Give by Angie Thomas. And if you're a YA writer or really a writer of any kind and you're subscribed, we would encourage you to go take a listen to that because we, we thought it went pretty well, right? I think so. So... Let's do this. Okay. Let's talk about (laughs) the handbook for mortals. So this sort of unfolded. I think it's important to – and I I feel like most people know what we're talking about already because it sort of blew up um, on the internet, especially like book Twitter, especially YA Twitter, which was this person's first tactical mistake that we'll get get into here in a second. But so the handbook for mortals is a book that – I think most people haven't really heard of. Right? Uh, no, the author. They also haven't heard of the author, who is Lainey Sarum. Yeah. Or some other kind of pronunciation thereof. I'm pretty sure it's not a real name. So we've got 
so we've got this book, and the reason we're talking about it is because out of nowhere, right, it debuts at number one on the New York Times bestseller list. Just boom, there it is. Ahead of the hate you give, the powerhouse of all of 2017, suddenly this book is number one. And of course, that raises some questions because no one has heard of this book, right? Not only have they not heard of this book, they've not heard of this author uh-huh. and the imprint and the publisher <laughs> was this is the debut yeah. this is the debut book from the publishing branch of Geek Nation, which if you've never heard of that website, welcome. Yeah. You're just like everyone else. Yeah. Um so this book shows up from a publisher that just shows up, hits number one immediately in its first week after publication, and that's fishy yep. for a lot of reasons. One, because there's no coverage of this book anywhere, right? There's no real reviews anywhere. It wasn't even rated on Amazon, so none of the sales were there's coming no through. There's no buzz. Everything showed it as being out of stock. Yeah. No one had basically no one had heard of this like phantom book that suddenly showed up you know, on the New York, you know, the New York Times bestseller list. Right? And as like, we know, and as we know from our interview with the lovely Shay Serrano, right. like pre-orders factor into a right. first week book success. And right. so, because nobody heard of this, yeah. it's like, well, I don't know. If yeah, there weren't know. any. There weren't even any real pre-orders. <laughs> there were new pre-orders, but BookScan was reporting that it sold over eighteen thousand copies. To put that in perspective, yeah. Angie Thomas's "The Hate You Give," which has been at number one for you know however yeah. many weeks, uh, sold six thousand. Yeah. So this had the numbers not um, – <laughs> had everything we're about to talk about that happened not happened. Um, this would be a remarkable situation, right? Like 18,000 copies for anyone in week in their first day Or in week. their first year. Or in their first ever. Like if you sell 18,000 copies of your book, you're doing a great job. Like a really, really great job. Um, this, would be a, this would be a phenomenon. The problem is that there's been no – like, no one had any idea what this was, and so, of course, that got everybody's scruples up, right? And the YA community loves a phenomenon, <laughs> but they don't love it when they're not in the phenomenon. That's the – so, real quick, I mean, we're obviously about to discuss, like, a scam. <laughs> but <laughs> why? Why pick YA? Why? Like, this this novel was, like, supposed to be – like, the this is ostensibly a YA novel, this book. The um, uh, ham- Well, it's not, ham- which is a whole nother issue. <laughs> It's a it's a but, book about a twenty something year old woman. Okay, um, and so that already takes it out of the YA category. Right, but. but basically, this person tried to play this game through the YA channel. Probably because then she would have to compete with James Patterson. True, but like, why pick them? Because those are the people who are gonna get the most mad. Those are the people <laughs> who are gonna get online Nobody. and start trying to play detective. And they did. They really, they did. really did. So the YA community is all like it's it's more of a community than any other I think right. book it's a tribe group yeah. it's yeah it's totally I mean we've talked about it before we've talked about its negative effects its positive effects etc um, mm-hmm. and they they get a little confused when something that they know is not part of their community is edging out the wonderful Angie Thomas who is like the it girl right now yeah. Um, and so YA author Phil Stamper, who's also a publishing professional, uh-huh. um, started started to get curious. He started digging into this. He started yeah. I mean, like if you think about like how many YA books on the market and how many YA authors like love Veronica Mars, is it any 
any <laughs> surprise yeah. that people started digging in yeah, with exactly. their intrepid <laughs> journalistic spirit. It's very true. I mean, I'm just saying, like, from the outset, this whole scheme we're about to get into was really tactically misguided because <laughs> you hit you hit the wrong wasp's nest with a baseball bat, basically. And they all just came out, and there's not even, like, a pond or anything you can jump in. Um, but so Phil Stamper, this author, decided to start digging into this. And the way he started doing it is he started calling bookstores. Right, because he was interested. Like, the, so the New York Times calculates its bestseller list off of reported sales, right? And those come from Amazon. Those come from, um, you know, stores that end up reporting to this, you know, the service called. Yep. and those books. and yeah. those those stores that report are secret. Right. Yeah, yeah they're exactly. all over the country. Right. Um, so, am, this book, like we said, was very low on all Amazon algorithms. So it, it was stood to reason that the sales weren't really coming from there, which and is it, also rare, obviously. It, it wasn't even available. It wasn't available on Ingram. It wasn't available on Baker and Taylor. It wasn't available on Amazon. It was all sold out. Yeah. And <laughs> I just or was segment. it? Don't don't don't. So he started calling bookstores, bookstores, and what they what the few he got in touch with told him was that giant mass orders had been placed at their store in advance of the publication date, right? Like just these giant dozens orders. Dozens and dozens yeah, of yeah, copies. Yeah, yeah, Like, you know, more than like 30 at a time, which I think qualifies as like a corporate sale, you know, by some channels. I think some it says here that some bookstores treat 80 as that threshold. But like basically these sales get flagged as corporate sales because one thing that the New York Times list does is it – it gives um, a nice little asterisk. Well, it's because it tries to prevent this. Because yeah. one thing that happens um, frequently in publishing, and I'm not sure everybody knows this, is that if you have someone who is, if you have an author who, and this is more like a nonfiction thing, if you have an author who is very rich or very high profile and they publish a book, like especially a memoir, they usually end up buying a ton of copies themselves. Like they will, um, you know, they'll just like, because they'll want them for their business, you know, maybe they'll hand them out at fundraisers and stuff. Like, there's a re- you know, there's a lot of situations where like very rich people who end up writing books. I mean, a lot of campaign books are like this. Mm. A lot of business books are like Didn't this. Didn't Jay Z do that to debut over Stankonia? <laughs> yeah, something. It's basically it's basically the Jay Z over Stankonia model. Uh, but <laughs> that's outcast for the rest of you. Um, so, um. But the idea here is that the New York Times wants its bestseller list to represent more of a, I guess, and we should get into this too, more of like a grassroots thing, right? Like it wants to reflect like actual will of the reader as yeah. opposed to, um, you know, this is a particularly trait of like large, um, like large profile conservative memoirists by a lot of their books like this. And um, so it puts like an asterisk on the list if it's like a book that has a big chunk of its sales through um, – you know, corporate or like large scale buys, right? And so this book didn't have didn't one. have that because um, it was I don't know like they kind of gamed it that way, right? So, but all these bookstores started reporting back to uh, Mr. Stamper, basically saying, um, "Yeah, no, people called and they." What's interesting about it is they first checked to see if like it was a reporting bookstore, right? Yeah, because somebody that, called up <clears throat> and yeah. said. Hey, is this a New York Times reporting bookstore? And then some of the people said, yes. And then they said, I would like 87 copies, please. Yeah. And so this started happening as he dug into this. And it was just so funny to sit there on Friday and watch this online because he started tweeting about this. And then a woman who I thought did a great job kind of updating the story throughout the day, Kaylee Donaldson, um, also started updating this. 
and you just kept getting these like increasingly bizarre posts about like the developing story. You know, like at one point, um, you know, we just kept hearing from bookstores. We kept seeing these screenshots of these direct messages on Twitter from like people saying, "Oh yeah, no, this these people contacted us too, and they." Asked us, you know, if we were reporting, and then they bought a bunch of copies of a book we don't even have in stock yet. Um, and that's honestly one of the funnier bits about this is the stock angle. <laughs> because <laughs> no um, one is like very few people have seen an actual copy of this. Yeah, book. no, I'm not sure. That, like that's the thing. Like, why do we even need the book at this point? Like, if the idea is to, if the New York Times bestseller list, and we're going to find out that this is the case, is not about. It's not a reflection of a book's success, but rather a means to an end. If you don't care about the book, which in a lot of ways I think you could argue is the case here, and you're just trying to use the New York Times bestseller list status and being number one on that list as a means for launching something else, why even have the book, right? Like why not just, um, you know, invent the concept of a book, sell it through a book? <laughs> Sell it through a bunch of pre-orders, have all those orders come through, have them all get reported, and then, I mean, I guess eventually they can send them back, right? Like, because one thing that's hilarious Well, if about, the books are never printed, if yeah. they never become available, yeah. then they've never, the order isn't completed and then nobody has to pay for it. Right. So people, like, placed all of these orders for books that probably don't exist and they probably are never going to have to pay for it. But you, but in the meantime, that with that lag, it gets reported, and so you can, and you like in a way, this person succeeded at the outset, right? Like she did end up as the number one book on the uh, published New York Times bestseller list because she managed to do it through this like phantom pre-order campaign using all these like marketing like teams that we ended up finding out about. Um, but I don't know. I find this very exciting because it's so it kind of we kind of got to this point where people were wondering like we're like what the hell? Like how is this happening? Why is it happening? Um, and we spent like, like I said, like five or so, like fe- hours, fe- yeah, <laughs> feverish hours of just people trying to get to the bottom of this. And then at the end, we sort of like the big plot twist for me, the one that had me like cackling at my uh, computer, was when we learned that there was a film involved. <laughs> was that this person was basically trying? There's already like an IMDb page set up for this book, for the film right, for the film adaptation of this book that no one has ever seen and yet is already at number one on the bestseller list, right? And <laughs> um, the author, I believe, is the lead in the yes. book. Yeah, yeah. So, so <laughs> lead actress in the in the movie version of the book that she wrote. Correct. Yeah. And so Great. apparently, it came out that there Perfect. was a deal where the movie would get greenlit if it was a New York Times bestseller. And so from everything that I've read, this project started out as a movie script. Mm -hmm. And then they turned it into a book specifically to get... Specifically to do this? Specifically to do this! Specifically to be to hit number one so that you could then turn around and say... And go back to Hollywood. (laughs) New York Times bestseller novel, which is now a script. Like... In a way, there's a certain there's a certain cynical illumination to all this, I think, which is like, what is the point of these lists? You know? Because one thing I think that really came into illustration really fast is that the New York Times bestseller list to the entire book community is a lot more than a list. And like we we had that episode once where we talked about like the use of the list and how it's much more than just a simple tracking of sales data and how in the New York Times, you know, released that, you know, statement about how they were changing up their coverage. Like, oh, well, you know, we're going to cover stuff differently. It's this to me is a better argument for them not doing that 
than anything anyone has said yet because people freaked out and yeah. rightfully so because being number one on the list implies so much more than this book sold the most copies on this given week. Yeah, right? it, it denotes quality. It denotes all sorts of stuff. Um, everyone was really mad because they're like, there's no way this book is better than Angie. You know, like <laughs> yeah, everyone yeah, got no, really offended no, for Angie ca- Thomas. Yeah, people caped up for, for Angie Thomas. And it became this like culture fight about, well, this book can't be number one. There's no way this book we've never heard of became number one. And that's where... Um, you know, eventually the author started kind of pushing yeah. back, a and little. it was removed. It, the New York Times removed. Well, so they did this remove it once one. they realized that there were no books. <laughs> 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 once they realized that, um, you know, basically this was all just a big. It was kind of a ploy to work mass sales into a position on a list that they, you know, they simply wanted the title of number one New York Times bestseller. And I guess my question to you, Laura is do did they earn it because they did sell the books you know and i guess like they would have to theoretically now print those books <laughs> like but i mean it is it i mean it, you could consider it to be like the largest print on demand yeah, campaign that, exactly in that's the world. what i'm saying yeah like there is i think a very strange argument devoid of most context and made fairly cynically which i think that this author and her marketing team did that suggests no you know what actually we by the standards of the New York Times bestseller list, we did it. We were the number one selling book of the week. Yeah. But everyone just consummately rejected that. And we started finding out about this film that they had planned. And, you know, like the American Pie guy is involved. Okay, you know what? I feel like <laughs> yeah, we need yeah, yeah. to take a break there for a second yeah. and give Lainey some credit. Uh-huh. Because, you know what? There are thousands and thousands of books that come out every year. Um, but there are only about 300 like studio supported movies that are produced every year yeah. in America, yeah. right? Right. And she's coming from film. She is an actress in such esteemed movies as Paul Blart Mall Cop. <laughs> <laughs> the Paul, a Paul Blart Mall Cop, Paul Blart 2. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. The second one. <laughs> a Paul Blart 2 Mall Cop Extra. Gamed the New York Times bestseller list. And that's the headline. That I mean, that's that and Kevin from American Pie. <laughs> no, I love Pie. it. I think this is good. As and hell. I would, I would like, you know, let like good for her for yeah. getting a lead in a movie, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Like even being attached to a movie that's even being floated around. You know how hard that is in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And you know what? Like good for Kevin from American Pie for doing stuff because like his his girlfriend in that movie is now in, like, Sharknado. And what's he doing? <laughs> Nothing. He's doing this. He's doing He's this. hitting number one, baby. So so you know what? Like, good for them. He's 37 years old and is going to be um, the love interest for the supposedly young adult novel, mm-hmm. which also good for him. Yeah. Um, no, I'm into it. Yeah. Um, in a way, I <laughs> – this will make me unpopular. But I love the attempt. I, I do. appreciate I it. I love the attempt. It needed to get shot down because as, you know, base because like, you know, the New York Times says, like they do want its list to reflect actual reader intent as opposed to And it's to, also not young adult. Yeah. So, I yeah. think I think Eric, if we go back to the question is did they actually earn it? Yeah. Um and- the answer then would be absolutely not. They don't earn a spot on the young adult <laughs> hardcover bestseller list because they're not young adult and it's actually not a hardcover. 
Yeah. I love that it hit number one without like barely any sales on Amazon, though. That makes that makes me my heart warm. Yeah, I bet that it, I bet that makes James Patterson really happy. Yeah. Um, but like, I don't know. Like, there's something about just the pure <laughs> brazenness of this. And what I think was so funny is the response the author gave after she got like found out, which I thought was really like indicative of her not. Again, like she doesn't know you guys. <laughs> like all you people out there who spend a bunch of time online talking about YA novels. Like she tried to play you and it did not work. And then she tried to keep talking about it and it got worse. Um, she basically tried to make the point that just because none of you have heard about the book doesn't mean that the book isn't good and worthy of being on like number one, which is a hysterical argument to make uh, one when it's demonstrable that all the sales from your books have come through an organized organized campaign to buy the book <laughs> in mass from people you know, and and two, the, it just kind of flings in its face the entire apparatus of the whole book industry, which I'm usually for. By the way, I love when people <laughs> like insult the very nature of book publishing because a lot is wrong with it, and it's fun to examine it, such as we're doing now. But. Um, she basically said, just because no one has reviewed it or heard of it or talked about it or read it or that it even exists, doesn't mean it's not a great book. And I love which that is a she, hysterical love, point to make. She returned it around on Phil, too, and yeah. was like, well, yeah. I haven't heard of you either, <laughs> but if you were a number one New York Times bestseller, I wouldn't begrudge yeah. you that. Well, she tried to she – used, <laughs> she used Fifty Shades of Grey as the comp, right? She was like, well, when Fifty Shades of Grey came out, everyone was mad because no one had ever heard of a book like this before. And then it hit number one, but everyone no, accepted it. No, everyone was it. mad because everyone was reading Fifty Shades yeah, of Grey. That's well, the key difference. <laughs> everyone was reading it and everyone was, em- was, was embarrassed for each other. <laughs> well, actually, there's an even more fundamental difference between this book and Fifty Shades of Grey, which is that Fifty Shades of Grey existed. Also it was true. Bo- <laughs> <laughs> it was a book that people were able to purchase and own, um, which is great. Um, so much so that like used bookstores are now making literal forts out of Fifty Shades of Grey copies. <laughs> really? That's great. Yeah, we're like they're like yeah. little reading nooks. Like they're little forts, and you can go in and like sit there. And they also have signs up saying "We will not accept any more Fifty Shades of Grey copies." So I mean, yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it's really the good. very opposite of of not existing. Um, I you know what? I feel like we've talked a little bit about the book industry and I feel like we've talked a little bit about the film industry. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel like we also need to bring in the third corner of that tricorn hat, <laughs> which is the music industry. Okay, so why for those who haven't followed this story until now, why is the music industry involved? So even because okay, so we've established there were no visible, you know, there was no visible traction on blogs. Or in the YA markets, or yeah. in any kind of online sphere at all. The press barely existed before yeah. the book existed. It, yeah, like the press. The press release came out less than a month before the book came right. out. Right yeah. to to but announce I mean, when that I the say imprint press, existed. Yeah, I was gonna say when I say press, I mean the imprint, like the publisher of the book, barely existed exactly. until right now. Yeah. Exactly. And so um, the music industry comes in because. Everyone started the only people that were tweeting tweeting about Handbook for Mortals and like posting about it on like Instagram or Facebook or whatever yeah. um were musicians. Yeah. Mainly the fourth best member of InSync, JC Chazé. <laughs> Hold on. So JC, the fourth hottest one, frankly. Yes. I'm sorry. Joey yeah. was hotter. 
He had a great heart. He, he had a good a beard. He was a little round, but we loved him. And then you had Justin. He was better than JC. Oh, I mean that. He's obviously the best right. one. Lance, and then Lance. Lance. No, Lance. Lance brought it every song. I know. You know. He did. He did. And you know what? The that like beautiful non ramen blonde <laughs> hair and his, you know, and just he was cute. He was very cute. Yeah. So the fourth best member of NSYNC. And real quick, were you an NSYNC or a Backstreet Boys? Person? Oh, Backstreet Boys. Oh my God. Are we breaking up right now? Yeah, Are we? Ha- we yeah, is like, print run over? It is because the Backstreet Boys demonstratively better. I'm I'm just curious, real quick. Where are any of the Backstreet Boys now? Um, they're in Las Vegas. Doing what? Just like playing for like moms or what? Yeah, they were also because like I'm just curious. Where where's like what's JT doing right now? Um, JT besides is not producing insane. besides producing gold records. Okay, here's okay here's how I see this. JT. Is clearly the best out of all of them, right? right? But right. if you take subliminal talent, but <laughs> but if you take <laughs> if you take the fact that JT is like fifteen times better than the rest of NSYNC as a boy band, Backstreet Boys is better because NSYNC had like a bunch of people who were mediocre, and then JT. You're saying it's a team game. I'm saying it's a team game. Wow, They're a like boy basketball. band. They're a boy band. Do you remember Five? Remember yes. The band Five. I liked yes. them. They were great. Do you remember S Club Seven? <laughs> yeah <laughs> no, 98 degrees fun fact everybody um so to my great surprise eric does not sing in the car right but he and i have spent a solid four hours going hey do you remember this band from the early 2000s yeah hey do you remember this one yeah oh yeah i liked that one so that's as close get... as he gets to singing <laughs> so jc the fourth best member of the greatest musical group of the 20th century. Ugh. Do not at me. I'm going to at you. I'm <laughs> adding you right here. Um, they, you know, he's, I guess, I guess he's her cousin. Um, and he was out there congratulating. And then we got, but like, that's not the only musical connection here. No. So what happened is he congratulated her and um, also, you know, some other uh, current mm-hmm. question mark and mm-hmm. former celebrities, uh-huh. um, including, the lady who played Glory on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. Okay. Um, she was also in Bring It On. She was in on this, but she was ready she, well, to do Well, she this. founded Geek Nation, and she was, like, yeah. tweeting about it and talking yeah. about the movie yeah. and all that stuff. Um, but because JC got in on it, and then YA Twitter, like, could sell, could could smell, like, the weakness in the water, <laughs> um, they jumped on it. And yeah. then all of a sudden, it came out that um, this author was formerly including being featured in Paul Blart 2. Mm-hmm. Um, Paul Blart 2 Reloaded, I believe is the name <laughs> of the sequel. Really? Because I would believe that. I don't know if that's the name of the sequel. I don't please, think. please do not hold me accountable for my understanding of mutant Paul Blart <laughs> disc- <laughs> filmography. <laughs> um. <laughs> I don't know what you want me to say. I will say that she was also in Jason Bourne, which is an also... I feel like the first three of those were really good, and then I didn't need. Did like, you watch the one with Jeremy Renner? I did not. I haven't either. Yeah, I anyway. haven't either. Anyway, um, so I'm gonna go back and watch those again now and see if she's in it. <laughs> see, I'm looking for the it. author now. Um, because I know she's not Julia Stiles, and I yeah. know there aren't that many women in that movie. Um, uh, anyway, <laughs> so it came out that she was, in addition to being an esteemed actress, mm-hmm. 
and now a writer. She yeah. was also a manager of musicians, uh-huh. including Blues Traveler, yep. who right away jumped they on disavowed this. Disavowed her. And tweeted, <laughs> and they said, yes, this is weird, but not surprising. We fired her for these kinds of stunts. Her sense of denial is staggering. Mm. And then also, yeah. who jumped on the Blues Traveler bandwagon. Yeah. Was Jackson Rathbone, hmm. who is a musician in 100 Monkeys, 300 Monkeys? Yeah, I don't know. One, of, one of those bands. Some band with a name like Some that. Some band with monkeys. Yeah. yeah. And who is also known as like one of the actually not hot vampires from Twilight. Oh, wow. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't know there were not hot vampires. I thought they were all hot. Well. I thought the point of that series was that everyone was hot. You know they had to paint abs <laughs> on Robert Patterson? <laughs> Pattinson? Really? Pattinson. Pattinson, please. They He's to... like a serious dude now. Like, he gets, like, real movies. Yeah. Well, yeah. good, because he spent, like, five years talking about how much he hated Twilight. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, they had to draw abs on him just mm-hmm. because he, like, wouldn't stop eating cheeseburgers. <laughs> Same, Robert. <laughs> Anyway, so like you take this weird music circle all the way back to YA, which I just find like delicious, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so Blues Traveler, who worked with her disavowser, JC Chazay was like, good for you, man. Jackson Rathbone, who is a musician apparently, but also a Twilight actor, mm-hmm. um, who had the really bad like Southern accent. Yeah. Um, was, you know, also was like same blues traveler, yeah. same. Right. Um <laughs> it's so good. Why is it so good? So there was, but she was also the manager. I have, I have here that she was also the manager or like part of the managing team for a while for Plain White Tees. Oh my goodness do you, gracious! Do you remember that band? Yes, because they had that one song. Which one? <laughs> you know the song. Come Which on. one? That what you know? I mean, listeners already know the song. Hey there, Delilah. Remember that one? I think you should. This show person me. was part of bringing Hey there, Delilah to the world. Oh. You know, come on. Hey there, Delilah. Come on, like we. <laughs> We've all we all know the song, right? Like, oh boy! And, but yeah, anyway, we she do. was she was a part of that marketing effort, and um, but like so, eventually, you know, she got. So how did this resolve itself? Like, the New York Times just said, "Yes, YA community, uh, we're gonna take this listing off because of quote unquote inconsistencies." Yeah, and that's one way to say that. The yeah, book, no one has the book. So then Lainey, um, in keeping with the fact that this is actually uh, a movie and not a book, went to yeah. The Hollywood Reporter uh-huh. um, and basically like pulled what I'm now considering to be like a Donald Trump, where it's like, everybody just hates me because I'm so good and I'm so new and I'm so fresh. It's the lion ass media. Yeah. Who yep. says that NSYNC isn't the greatest band of all time. You know what? That is a valid opinion. I went to both of their concerts and guess who put on a better show? Eric Hane. Who did? Backstreet Boys. So Lainey fired back um, through the the Hollywood Reporter, and it. My favorite thing is that she she says that the Handbook for Mortals has always been seen as a film and as a multi platform property and not just a book. And a multi platform property. Yeah. Man. And it's like coming at me saying that like this is a billion dollar franchise. It's like if somebody just like put up a brand like a like a brand new restaurant and it hadn't been tested and saying like this is a billion dollar like multi-location thing and there's going to be a theme park and there's going to be a show in vegas well we've given that advice before to new authors we've said that the key to getting good book sales is to have a theme park for your book so i'm glad that i'm glad that lanny's a listener okay to start (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, this is this is what it looks like to take all of our advice. By the way, <laughs> is you end up doing this. You end up in number one for like a day and a half, though. So that's good. Yeah, that's true. She also says that, not to her knowledge, has anyone been messing with her book sales? Mm-hmm. Um, but she and she's coming at it and saying. Well, everyone in the YA community here is wrong, and everyone's just mad because I've been really big on the con circuit. Mm. So the science fiction fantasy con circuit. As if those two spheres don't overlap. Yeah. So I feel like the the con thing is like there's one more. Like con is in like conference and not as Yeah, like a comic con. As opposed to like con is in what she's running here. Um, (laughs) So... um, the Connaughton, like, conference or whatever the actual term is. I think it's conference. Comic-Con. Yeah. Um, so I feel like people would have heard of her from there, too. Like, there would still be buzz. Like, the point of going to those things is energy and, like, publicity, right? Like, you go to the event so that people will talk about you. Yeah. Is that true? And like, yeah. And, like, she name-dropped a bunch of huge cons, like Dragon yeah. Con. And it's, yeah. like, authors go to that, too. Like, that's a really big book con. Like maybe if you said that you were giving out books at the San like the San Diego Comic Con or something like that, where it's like mostly film based and there are fewer authors there and there's so many people, but like you can't just come in with like Dragon Con in your lips and yeah. and like say that everyone's make, missed you because like we're all there too. It's just gonna make everyone more mad. And it has. It and has it really mad. has. Do you know who's <laughs> even mad? Um even the cover designer for yeah. this book. Oh, the cover is, is a great thing here. Yeah. So the cover, from what I can tell, is just like a ripoff of a different cover that already exists. Well, it's a ripoff of like an actual just like art painting. Yeah. Well, so <laughs> to me, like, so let's say you're doing this, right? Like, you're like, all right, time to scam the New York Times bestseller list. Time to scam the YA community. Right. Like, it's time to do this. The first mistake you can't make is. Making a cover, like let's say that this wasn't a scam. Let's say that this actually did have suddenly like eighteen thousand people who just bought the book on no notice right away. You would still be yelled at for having a cover that looked like a ripoff of someone else's cover. Like just make a cover that looks unique. Like surely, if you've got the money to arrange for this amount of marketing and pre-order coordination, you have the money to get a book cover that looks like your own book cover. <laughs> like it just feels like an incredible unforced error here. Like as someone who is rooting for the con here, are like, you really rooting for the con? <laughs> not really, obviously, but like <laughs> I do find it entertaining. Like I do think that it raises some interesting questions about like what we what we mean when we talk about the bestseller list and like what it means like one thing i think is really interesting is that um everyone went and bought angie thomas's book after this if you look at like the comments to all the articles about this everyone was like you know and i just felt so bad for angie that i went and bought her book again or i just discovered this great book who actually was so like people are paying attention to this who never even paid attention to the new york that's what i mean like this this is a big win for angie thomas this whole thing because she sold a lot of books out of people being mad at this other book which I, <laughs> I'll bet you a hundred dollars she's number one next week. Oh sure, I think they already put her back. I think they reinstalled no, her. No, no, but one. next week. Oh yeah, no, of course. Okay. It's we're still we, that book still has juice. I mean, it's just like, um, yeah. I just I wanted this to go a little cleaner because I think it would make for more entertaining conversations. Like so, I've been um I've been a part of some mass corporate. Like buys of books. Have you really? Right, yeah, like it's a like you know a lot of these articles like Publishers Weekly did this and Pajiba did this you know um, from Kaylee Donaldson who I who by the way deserves a great shout out for her work covering this in real time um, on Friday. But 
Um, no, I've been a part of books, book situations where um, at the time of acquisition in-house, like one of the key publishing factors is that you know the author is going to buy like 10, like a 10,000 copies on his own, hmm. you know, before. And, like, and you can factor that into like your sales stuff and everything. And what gets interesting about it to me is less that it's um, like you don't really feel – like, you know, they're, they're real sales. They're genuine sales. Like you print, like uh, unlike this, you actually print for these sales and they actually do buy them and the sale goes through. Like um, you actually <coughs> see money from this? Right, exactly. Like, you know, the person, whoever it is, usually in the cases, I mean, like we've kind of talked about at the beginning, like it's it's rich people who are trying to build a brand, right, who are going to take the book and then distribute it through their own means as opposed to you doing it. And um, one thing that I think is funny that happens is you still go through all the traditional channels with it, right? Like you go to sales conference and you take the book and you start presenting it and stuff and like the salespeople perk up and they look at like the numbers for like first year sales and they're like, wow, this is really high. You're lo- this looks like this is going to sell a ton of copies, but like it doesn't seem like a book that will. And you have to like sort of say, well, it's because the author is buying all of them. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to like talk. It's weird because you end up having to talk about this book in a manner like it's a much bigger promising book than it actually is because the sales numbers demand it. Interesting. Even, <laughs> um, but one point that I think is really astute that gets made in some of these pieces that is that it is, and this has been the case in the few times I've seen it, it is like really, really rich conservative dudes who do this. Yeah, it, who, it's like a lot of it's, like, it's like a lot of congressmen, books. a lot of re- yeah. yeah religious books. It's those kind of people because they're the ones who have like a really like stronghold on their community and can like just you know they're better at getting to their readers than you are um but it it creates like a really weird internal conversation because it feels as close to like self-publishing as traditional publishing gets i think because you're not really like you know the publicity effort it's like well we already sold this many copies so we can probably just you know like you get the sense that the author really is printing the books for themselves and they're like paying obviously they're paying a ton of money to buy that many copies and they tend to do it at pretty close to like list price um so my favorite thing is that everyone is like not mad that this is happening because clearly it's been happening for tons of books like there are even services where you can pay for about two hundred thousand dollars you can pay to be on the new york times bestseller list they'll put you on there but everyone's just mad because it happened in the on ya's watch yeah, no, but that's that's the thing is no one bats an eye at this stuff when it happens on other, you know, in other realms. Like nonfiction, like you'd get the asterisk and everybody would move on and no one would care, you know. Mm. And it's – I don't know. It Again, it just kind of like if there's any like real thing to take away from this, and I'm not sure there is, like I'd rather just like laugh about in sync, like tweeting support for this book. Um, it's that – you know, we treat this bestseller list as something far more than the list, you know, far more than like a sales record. And it's when someone messes, you don't really see it until someone messes with it. And, someone, and then you care. And someone messed with it and people really, really cared. And I don't know, in a way it's refreshing, right? Because you want people, you want this stuff to be, you want it to matter in a way that gets beyond like algorithms and like raw data. But you can see how you can cynically take it because it's not like she's done anything illegal here, really. Yeah. It's not like she's done anything really that wrong. I mean, really, all of this would be like no one would care about this if there was an asterisk next to yeah. it. If the New York Times just said, oh, okay, we'll just put a little thing next to it, um, then no – but you just get the sense that 
when someone attacks the very like identity of like what it means to be on the list and what it means to have a book to have sell that many copies, it is refreshing in a way to see an entire industry reject that, I think. Do you know what my favorite part about all of this is? Yeah. So I did did something that I never usually do. Mm-hmm. And I read the comments. <laughs> Mistake. <laughs> Mistake. But my favorite thing is that like hundreds of people are now casting the movie about this failed bestseller. Yeah. Instead of talking about the movie that's actually hoping to be made from this. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, I think that is just like the perfect YA irony yeah. there. And I just want to like want to put a cherry on that yeah. and like lick, you know, like like kiss kiss my hand and, <laughs> and like walk down the street you I know, hope with this my movie, hair flying. I hope this movie gets made. Wouldn't that be I great? want the movie to get made. And I want them like because you know they're gonna say that they were number one on the bestseller list. Like I feel like they are gonna run with this. And I hope so. Yeah, because they're like no one, no one's gonna check. No one's gonna follow. No one who cares about the book world is gonna like be scrolling through IMDb to like make sure that you know this movie happens in the manner of their like they're gonna forget. And I hope JC is in it. <laughs> yeah. I mean I hope they put Blues Traveler just like as the soundtrack. That and like Hey There Delilah just like as the entire soundtrack yeah, for regret, the entire movie. I regret seeing Hey There Delilah on this program, listener. We're, I'm sorry we're about not going to cut it off. <laughs> so the best thing about this last weekly news cycle mm-hmm. that we use here on Print Run um, is that <laughs> this this whole Handbook for Mortals thing is not the only crazy thing that happened this week. Thank God. Like, it's summer. I'm tired. I don't want, like, I'm just ready for, like, other things to happen. And what I needed, what I, I needed it this week. I needed this week to be filled with dumb scandals about books. And do you know what? I needed it to also involve um, the most wonderful Stephen King. Because as you oh, might Stephen recall. Oh, Stephen King is involved. Yes. What do we got with him? As you might recall, um, the very first segment we did for Print Run involved a scandal with Stephen King. I consider him the father of Print Run. He's her dad. Like James, like so. Who are the choices? Are like James Patterson is like the guy where like, he's like he's, our. He's like the cool uncle. He's like yeah. He's like our respected enemy. You know, <laughs> like we like love him and respect him, but like we have we're like waged an eternal he's war like with him. He's like the Don. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But like, Stephen King's our dad. You know. Yeah. So so Stephen um, did something this week again to to mm-hmm. put himself in our good graces. Not that he's ever been outside of our good graces. Let's be honest. No, he is because he never answers me online. Oh, yeah. I send a tweet to Stephen King so frequently Every that, it's, week. that it's like the bit is tired, you know? <laughs> like, <laughs> and he never answers me. I keep, Someday. I keep inviting him on the show. Like, if you know Stephen, if you're like, if someone listening to this is like Stephen King's like grandson if or something. If somebody lives in Bangor, Maine, yeah. just drive over to his house. Tell him to check his damn mentions because I'm in there frequently. The loon asking is in there, him, yeah. <laughs> asking him to come on the show. But what did he do this time? So it wasn't what he did. Yeah. It's what the president did. Mm, yeah. So this is a huge thing. This is this is with our father, <laughs> Stephen King. And you know what this is? This is a fight between the king and the president. Oh, wow. Yeah. 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 That was very dramatic. Thank oh, you. That's some good radio <laughs> right there. We're doing really good. Uh, so the president um, blocked Stephen King on Twitter. <laughs> so obviously there's a lot that has nothing to do with books that's funny about that you know our like leader of the free world being like mad online and stuff like there's some element of that that I think is very funny but within the parameter of this show what's funny about it is that Stephen King tweets 
nothing but like dad jokes at the president. <laughs> he's like he's like one of the dudes who like has the blue check and is always like saying things like, "You know who the real clowns are, folks? Congress." Like <laughs> like the, like like that's basically Stephen King online. And so the idea that he would like offend like our elected official to a degree that would have him that angry um, is is amusing. Do we know what the tweet was that got him blocked? No. Stephen just like found no, out one day like, that he caught it. Blo- yeah. He, I think he tried to at yeah. the president. He, he tried to do another dad joke, and Donald, Donald had enough. Huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so um, this is, and then he then tweeted, "Donald Trump blocked me on Twitter. I am hereby blocking him from seeing it or Mr. Mercedes." No clowns for you, Donald. Go float yourself. See what I mean? He's just like a, he's just your dad. He's just like, <laughs> and you can just sit him like sitting there in like a like a worn out flannel, like feeling really good about that one. You know? Like yeah, go float yourself. If I remember correctly, so he, I remember when this happened. Um, I'm pretty sure, um, as ever, when like things like this happened, uh, much to my like rising blood pressure, J.K. Rowling got involved. She always she, gets yeah, involved. She she always does get involved. Um, but she was like, you know, very publicly, don't worry, Stephen, I'll show you the tweets. I'll screenshot them and DM them to you. I'm like, oh my God, this makes me want to set myself on fire. <laughs> I hate this so much. But, um, yeah, so Stephen King, um, I guess Donald is not allowed to go see the movies. And um, you know what? I hear it. The remake is very, very good. Really? And they cut the orgy scene in the sewer. So <laughs> that's those like like the 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 Venn diagram of it yeah. as a movie being yeah. good and yeah. it having the orgy scene in the sewer. Uh-huh. They're two separate circles. So I'm glad they went with the good one and not the orgy one. Yeah. So good on you, Steven. Yeah. And film crew. <laughs> Answer my calls, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> Call me back. Um so that that was like actually a little interlude because we have an entirely separate thing yeah, this, this week is, also. This is good as hell. This too, is just yeah. like the most scandalous week ever. I feel like Shonda Rhimes is gonna like put us on television pretty soon, mm-hmm. and it's going to just be very emotionally exhausting for everyone involved. I'm already frankly exhausted. But <laughs> so what do we got? What do we got now? Um, so we have kind of a. It's it's not necessarily like a new piece of information it's like the latest chapter to the world yeah so um i had never heard of this person john smelser who is an author um and he is according to an article by the stranger um the headline is he's native american literature's living con job which is taking a (laughs) quote directly from um marlon james um, so basically, the the big thing that you need to know about John Smeltzer is for years and years and years, he has been claiming that he is um, a Native American from Alaska. Mm-hmm. He's been forging letters of acceptance from the, you know, like really, really big literary journals. He's been lying about his credentials. He's saying he's been saying that he's gotten um that he's gotten uh like blurbs from people who are dead. Yeah. Most notably like Norman Mailer. And well and JD Salinger, which is so which again, like similar to the last scandal we just dealt with. Just work on the unforced errors, man. Like JD Salinger isn't gonna blurb you or anyone. JD no. Salinger doesn't talk. No, he's never he never blurbed anyone. He was a famous recluse. Like that's what I mean. Like yeah. it's the it's the same thing. Like if you're gonna just start making shit up, do it in a manner that seems like semi plausible. Yeah. But anyway, continue. So so, 
uh, Smelter kind of came to the public eye again because he yeah. had a YA novel, again with the YA, um, called Stealing Indians, and it was just nominated for a Penn Literary Award. The guy who impersonates a Native American for his career wrote a book called Stealing Indians? Correct. Okay, continue. Um, continue. And so, you know, like... Penn is very aware of this and they're working to, you know, kind of get him and get him pulled out. And there is a Native American author and scholar, Debbie Reese, who has been kind of tracking and posting about Smeltzer since he's been around, right, for a really long time. So basically kind of like taking one for the team and calling this out. Um, but so Smeltzer, Smeltzer did something that was really funny. Well, so real quick, I do think it, before we get into the reason we want to talk about it, um, it is interesting that this guy who has basically made up an entire career of credentials, including like various PhDs from you know universities and things like that, um, he got nominated. He did legitimately get nominated for this award, right? Like an Correct. outside body did want to like not. So he did. It would seem in a perfectly sealed vacuum, write a book that someone would want to read, you know. But like that almost. All- <laughs> It sounds like the book also traffics in some stereotypes, especially when we know that who this guy is. Yeah. And it's worth mentioning that he was the only, um, quote unquote, of color nominee for this award (laughs) this year. Um, But so but so anyway, the the uh, the um, Rich Smith, who is the the author of this big stranger article, has been trying to like track this guy down because at this point Debbie Reese um as wonderful as she is like Smeltzer kind of like has her number and like knows you know that she's basically like slapping him down at every turn and so um (laughs) so the journalist Smith here then has been trying to kind of get comments from a Smeltzer and try to report on it in a very wonderful journalistic way um and tried to put a comment through his website and ended up getting directed to contact his agent. His agent, yeah. So this, um, and this would be standard, right? Like you get an author who gets yelled at as much as this guy does. Like eventually he's going to say, you know what? Just send it through my agent, which is a nice way of saying, I don't, don't want like, it. Don't send it to me at all. Send it <laughs> to the agent. But, <laughs> and this is where I've really drawn some inspiration from my own life. Um, but tell, tell us what we got here. So they found out that his agent's name is Johnny Savage. Uh-huh. Um, so basically like a wannabe Ramones member. Mm-hmm. Um, and Johnny Savage is the founder and CEO of Savage Work Entertainment Management, which represents, quote, the industry's hottest actors, screenwriters, writers and musicians in L.A., Vegas and across America. So I went to this website. I went to go look at him and everything is gone. Everything is blank. Well, from right, this website. because, and I think we should just get to it here. Uh, Johnny Savage isn't real. He's not um, real. This dude made up, he made up his agent, and he made, obviously he like gave him like kind of like a, you know, provocative name that obviously also has some Super like, racist, yeah, has some especially really for like, somebody saying that he's Native yeah. American. Um, but like, so it just like got me thinking about like inventing an entire other agent. Um, and especially after this episode, I feel like people are going to like be mad at us and like send us mean things in which I will say, instead of contacting me, contact my agent whose name is Randy Goodbooks. <laughs> um, you can you can add him instead of me. I'm not interested in your hate mail. Um, you can send it to Mr. Goodbooks. 
Thank you. Is Mr. Goodbooks as attractive <laughs> as Johnny Savage is, though? Because let me tell you, He's folks, very... Johnny Savage is Ian Somerhalder from the um, the CW's The Vampire, well, yeah, yeah, vampire well, Diaries. So what she what she means there is that um, on the like screenshot image from the website before it got deleted, there's like a picture of this supposed man, and it's like an actor from the CW. It's a very well known <laughs> actor. Right? Again, same thing. Like, don't make. Don't do that. Don't. He's got a baby with Nikki Reed, who is also in the Twilight movies. Again, you can't fuck with YA. Don't don't pick an image of a person that people have heard of to and be your yeah, fake person. Don't don't like have don't write YA when you pick an image of your agent who is Damon Salvatore from a <laughs> like teen leading show on a leading teen network. Like, I would come like. On. I would like. I would like to start a different – this is the end of Print Run, and I'd like to start a different podcast where we just advise people on how to do cons better than they're doing them. I watch a lot of heist movies. Yeah. That can be of good yeah, help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I think that I've that... seen every episode of Leverage. <laughs> I just – I mean, obviously, this is absurd, and this guy should go away, and it sounds like they're going to take away his nomination and stuff because of the various problematic aspects of his life and the fact that the entire book community dislikes him for pretty solid reasons. Um it's just, again, like the one thing that's so funny with this stuff in the last one, it's just, it's just rife with just silliness. It's rife with just mistakes all over the place. Like if you're <laughs> gonna create a whole new email and a in a and like pay for a Wix template to host an entirely separate website and pay for the domain name, don't pick a celebrity for the picture. Or like, or don't or don't name name it Johnny Savage. Oh jeez. Yeah. That's, oh jeez. Anyway, that's I mean, you can you really have to dig into this entire article, the John, the John Smelser article, because it is crazy. Well, I mean, he's just made up an entire career, it sounds like. I mean, which is though I'm interested in that. One thing that does interest me in this, I don't you know, the fact that he got nominated for an award in 2017, like we have what decades now of knowing that this guy is who he is, yep. like according to this this reporting, like. So I don't know what Penn Faulkner is or the Penn Society is doing. Um, like, I don't know. It just seems to me like we could have done a little better job of giving these awards out. And this is just one more instance of, like, the book world just, like, shooting itself in the foot when it comes to this stuff. And and having, the like, the YA authors specifically come and save them. And then, like, having to have it resolved in, like, the funniest way possible involving, <laughs> like, a fake agent <laughs> Name something super super racist. Yeah, like this is how this is how it always ends up going. The pub tip this week is once once you've become you know a multinational bestseller, famous author in an, HBO, uh, an authentic <laughs> bestseller, a real one with a real agent. Um, once you do that, and HBO buys the the television rights to your show, or anybody, it doesn't just have to be HBO. It well, could be Showtime. Could be Netflix. I'm calling, could be Hulu. I'm calling HBO the problem in this situation. Um, make sure that they don't take all of your really good content and plot twists and future stuff. And, and just, pacing. And just like jam it together into a horrible mix of nothingness that makes what was once a really great program into something terrible. Um, if you could just make sure that that doesn't happen. I'd be much happier as both a reader and a viewer, and you'd be happier as an author. Make sure your agent puts that into the contract. <laughs> Have Mr. Goodbooks put in a cla- <laughs> put in a clause 
Um, obviously, we're talking about Game of Thrones. It was it was not good. You know what? No. Do you know what it was? It was very, very good yeah. for a television episode. It was very, very bad for a Game of Thrones episode. Yeah, it was no good. Because no good. we became spoiled by like actually good pacing and actual consequences and actual like tension that is carried through. Have you seen those pictures of George trying on hats? Yes. Instead of doing literally anything yes. useful. Yes. Yeah, he's got like a little jester hat with little bells. Yeah. I, I mean, it. I feel like that's just a sign to us saying he knows. He does know. I'm glad that he's trolling the whole world by as his show like burns up into mediocre you know, flames. He's letting it burn up. And then, as we talked about in our episode, write the book, George, he is going to just slam it down and knock it out of the park. Yeah, I hope and so. And it's going to be great. I hope so. It's going to be great. And he's going to do it wearing his cute little jester bells because I think he looks adorable in that. <laughs> He's very cute. He's my son. If, <laughs> if Stephen King is our father, George R. R. Martin is our son. Yeah. Oh, what an interesting family tree this loon has. Yeah, it's Christmas really sucks. Anyway, that is your pub tip of the week. Um, we we will we will see you this Thursday for our first pages. Stay tuned. <laughs>